Please be aware the stories, theories, reenactments, and language in this podcast are of an adult nature and can be considered disturbing, frightening, and even in some cases, offensive. Listener discretion is therefore advised. Hey, there is very adult content ahead and you have been warned. Welcome, heathens. Welcome to the world of the weird and unexplained. As always, I am your host, Nicole Delacroix, and together we will be investigating stories about the weird, wonderful, unexplained, eerie, scary, and downright unbelievable. There will be tales of ghosts, murder, supernatural beings, and unexplained mysteries. So, sit back, grab your favorite drink, Relax and prepare to be transported to today's Dark Enigma. And on today's Dark Enigma, well, we're going to try to pull ourselves out of the slump that's caused by the, well, anticlimactic ending of Game of Thrones. Don't worry, don't worry. If you haven't seen it yet, there are no spoilers here. But today we do propose the question, are dragons real? Could they be? But before we jump into the darkness of today's topic, we do have a little business to address first. That's right, my darlings, we will be playing our drinking game as always. And remember, the drinking game is only for those of you that are at home and have nowhere else to go tonight, and always make sure you drink responsibly. And today, you have a little bit of homework with today's episode. That's right, there is a drink out there called Dragon's Blood. Now, the dragon's blood comes both regular and, well, flaming. So your mission, if you choose to accept it, is to find this recipe. Make many, many, many of them. And, well, drink as many as you can stand. And, well, this podcast will self-destruct at the end. (laughs) I'm kidding. It won't. All right. So back to the game portion. Um, let's see. Every time I say dragon, it's going to be a single shot. And every time I say Christianity, well, that'll be a double shot for you. All right. Now that we have the business end out of the way, let's jump headfirst in today's dark enigma. But be warned, there be dragons here. One very prevalent fixture of fairy tales and modern fantasy films and fiction is the all-powerful presence of the mighty dragon. Immense, unstoppable, and truly terrifying, these terrible lizards are like something out of a nightmare, and one may feel comforted to believe that they exist only in the world of our imagination. But do they? For centuries, there have been numerous accounts that treat these fierce monsters as, well, very real. And from back in the dark corners of time all the way up to the present, there are those who claim that the dragons of lore are much more than just legend and myth. Now, no mythological creature is more varied than the dragon itself. From the compound-eyed alien dragons of Anne McCaffrey's Dragon Riders of Pern series, to the chronically ill swamp dragons of Terry Pratchett's Discworld, dragons have been invented and reinvented countless times in popular fiction. It's pretty much impossible to pin down traits that every fictional dragon shares. 
Hell, just look at the diversity of form that exists in the How to Train Your Dragon movies alone. I know, I had to pull one out from there. Sorry, guys. But do any of these dragons have any real-life counterparts in the animal kingdom? Dragons may not exist exactly as we know them from shows like Game of Thrones, but have any non-fictional creatures ever demonstrated distinctly draconic features? Well, let's find out. To see how real-world creatures stack up against our fantasy-beloved beast, we're going to break it down and limit it to just a couple of traits that most dragons share. When you shut your eyes and you picture a dragon, the creature in your mind's eye is probably huge, with wings and, well, a propensity to breathe fire. So, those are the traits we're going to be looking at. We will look both to extinct and surviving non-fictional creatures to see whether dragons are or ever were. Now, the dragons in fantasy are almost always depicted as reptiles, or at least reptilian, with scaly skin, horns, claws, and egg-laying lifestyle. Okay, aside from the egg-laying lifestyle, that sounds like a guy I used to date. However, no living reptile reaches the gargantuan sizes that dragons typically do in fiction. Despite their draconic name, Komodo dragons, the largest living lizard species, typically only grows up to about 150 pounds. Hell, the largest living reptile, the saltwater crocodile, can grow to a respectable length of 20 feet and roughly about 2,000 pounds. Still no match for the immensity of the hobbit's smaug, which by the way is my personally favorite dragon. We have to look to the past to find creatures that really reach draconic proportions, the dinosaurs. Dinosaurs are one of the few non-fictional beasts that truly compare to dragons because they grew so inconceivably large. I know I missed the whole princess bride, inconceivable. All right, I threw it in there just for you guys. I hope it, I hope it made you giggle. The largest of the dinosaurs, the titanosaurs, may have grown to lengths exceeding 130 feet and weighed up to 90 metric tons. Just to give you an idea, that's longer than four school buses lined up end to end and 12 times heavier than the heaviest living land animal, the elephant. Animals that grow to massive sizes face important trade-offs and we do have to look at those. Simply put, the bigger you are, the more food you need. Not only that, but the bigger you are, the more energy it takes to move the sheer mass of yourself from place to, pit, to place. So simply put, you know what, you need more food to move that big fat ass. Sorry. So even though animals of draconic size once existed, it's highly unlikely they even approach the speed of a dragon as we know and love them. In most dragon-centered fiction, dragons, well, they're able to fly. There's very few where they don't. But in reality, flying is extraordinarily difficult. And the bigger an animal is, the more difficult flying becomes. Take, for example, one of the largest animals ever to fly, the Petrosaur Kitsukwadalus. Standing as tall as a giraffe on all fours, this sky terror had a 35-foot wingspan and could probably fly up to 80 miles an hour. Like modern birds, Quetzalcoatlus had a lightweight beak instead of teeth, and it utilized a system of air sacs within their bones and wing membranes. 
Most of the body was trimmed down for maximum aerodynamic efficiency, leaving Quetzalcoatlus looking less like a dragon and more like a giant hairy stork with no tail. So not as cool as Smaug. Sorry. Generally, dragons are depicted with fearsome teeth, long tails, and an assortment of bristling horns, which would all make them incredibly heavy in the air. To add even more weight, most fantasy dragons also have a third pair of limbs on their backs to serve as wings. It all adds up, and in reality, it would leave any creature, even with the best assortment of air sacs and hollow bones, struggling to get that fat ass off the ground, let alone achieve true powered flight. So, if dragons as we know them from fiction were to suddenly become real, how would they even get airborne? Well, here's where we got to turn away from the world of biology and learn a little bit more about technology. The largest flying animal probably didn't even exceed 500 pounds, if that. However, one of the largest flying things, the Boeing 747, can weigh up to 485 tons. So, how do such heavy planes manage to fly? In theory, anything with the right wing shape can achieve lift. It just needs enough thrust to get it up in the air. Yeah, I'm sorry. you got to get enough thrust to get it up. Sorry. <laughs> Anyways, and this can be an incredibly hard thing to do, especially the heavier you become. Planes achieve this with combustion engines, which provide enough force to lift the plane into the air. Now... I'm not suggesting our hypothetical dragon could achieve flight by attaching engines to themselves, although that would be pretty awesome and super cool. But the topic of combustion does lead us into our next topic for our dragon-like animals, which is breathing fire. Now, fire breath is likely the most magical aspect of the dragon, one that truly sets it apart. Real animals can get scaly, they can get big, and they may even fly, but none of them are known to spit actual flames. Considering the range of dangerous substances animals have evolved to harness, like acid in our stomachs, venom in the fangs of a snake, cyanide in the tissue of a cassava plant, it's almost surprising that none of us, none of them, have ever used fire as a biological weapon. But there are animals who have evolved to use combustion for self-defense. The most famous is the bombardier beetle. These hot little bugs mix hydrogen peroxide and hydroquinine in special insulated chambers inside their abdomens. The chemical reaction releases so much heat that the liquid nearly reaches the boiling point, and a series of tiny explosions, yes, actual explosions, Send noxious hot liquid spraying out of the beetle's abdomen. And just on a side note here, I think they missed a huge opportunity here because the hot liquid should just come out of their butts. I'm just saying it would be hilarious to say that because that would be like, you know, hot liquid coming from your butt. I mean, how funny is that, right? <laughs> Even though it's not clear when and where the stories of dragon first emerged, the history of dragons remains long and rich and in many forms. Dragons were described as far back as the Sumerian and ancient Greeks. According to them, dragons were thought of as exotic animals that possessed both good and bad characteristics, sometimes as useful and protective, and other times as harmful and dangerous. In some cultures, for instance, 
in communities that people had no knowledge about the existence of dinosaurs, the belief in dragons was not just based on legends and other stories, but on actual hard evidence such as gigantic bones that were periodically excavated from the earth. Reports of creatures very much like the fire-breathing winged dragons of film and fantasy have been reported from civilizations all over the world. One such very early account comes from England, of all places, and describes how the British king Morvidus was killed in 336 BC by a great dragon that rose from the Irish Sea and gulped down the body of Morvidus as a big fish swallows a little one. The ancient explorer Titus Flavius Josephus also brought back tales of strange flying reptiles in ancient Egypt and Arabia. And the 3rd century historian Gaius Salinas spoke of these creatures as well, further adding that they had potent venom that could kill a man even faster than he would realize that he had even been bit by one. Many of the more spectacular early accounts of dragons, well, they were provided around the 4th century by... You guessed it, Alexander the Great and his men after invading India. One account was reported by Alexander the Great himself, who claimed that he had seen an enormous hissing serpent lurking within a dank cave and that the local tribes had worshipped it as a god. And his lieutenant, Onesicritius, also reported that there lived in India enormous serpents measuring 100 to 200 feet long. Some very intriguing early accounts of historical dragons can be found in the writings of the great 5th century Greek historian Herodotus, often referred to as the father of history, for his systematic method of recording events. According to the famous historian, these monsters lived in spice groves and frankincense trees, and he told that workers made a habit of driving them away with smoke before harvests. And Herodotus once wrote of these creatures, and I quote, There is a place in Arabia, situated very near the city of Buto, to which I went on hearing of some winged serpents. And when I arrived there, I saw bones and spines of serpents in such quantities as it would be impossible to describe. The form of the serpent is like that of the water snake, but he has the wings without feathers and as like as possible to the wings of a bat. End quote. Interesting, right? In the 8th century, we have the account given by a St. John of Damascus, who wrote that during a battle against Carthage, a huge dragon measuring 120 feet long had appeared behind the Roman army to approach them. The army had then reportedly attacked and killed it, and had the skin sent to the Roman Senate, although what happened to it after that, no one really knows for sure. This report is really quite interesting because it's a matter-of-fact account without any embellishment and sitting within other more mundane chronicles of the battle. In fact, he would go even he would even go as far as to state that the dragons were not magical creatures in any way, but rather just large reptilian animals. Makes you wonder what he was talking about, doesn't it? In later centuries, we have the tales of the great explorer Marco Polo, who traveled around Asia, Persia, China, and Indonesia in the late 13th century, and brought, brought back all manner of fantastical tales of these exotic lands, their people, and their animals. Some of these reports included what can only be described as a dragon, 
Within Polo's work, The Travels of Marco Polo, there is a passage concerning a place in the Far East that he called Karajan, which was apparently infested by the fierce beasts, in which he describes, and I quote, Here are found snakes and huge serpents, ten paces in length and ten spans in girth. That would be roughly about fifty feet long and a hundred inches in circumference. At the forepart, near the head, they have two short legs, each with three claws, as well as eyes larger than a loaf and very glaring. The jaws were wide enough to swallow a man whole. The teeth are large and sharp, and their whole appearance is so formidable that neither man nor any kind of animal can approach them without terror. Others are of smaller size, being eight, six, or five paces long. End quote. Again, this is all stated as matter of fact. Even going into depth about how the natives hunt and kill the creatures, and it's hard just what to make of it all. This apparently happens a lot with early dragon reports, and they even make appearances in respectable zoological compendiums. One good example of this can be seen within the pages of the work of Conrad Gessner, who was the great nationalist, I'm sorry, naturalist in the 16th century and wrote of dragons as if they were any other mundane animal, and gives one description of the beast seen in the 10th century of a dragon seen in Ireland with a horse-like head, a thick powerful tail, and stumpy clawed legs. Once again, sounding just like somebody I dated. Another famed 16th century naturalist by the name of Ulysses Aldrovandus, sorry about that, hard name to pronounce, especially when you're drunk, also wrote seriously of dragons and related several tales of the beasts, such as that of a herdsman who had been driving his herd of cattle in rural Bologna, where he had encountered a small dragon that had blocked his path and hissed at him. The herdsman had then apparently killed the creature and saved the carcass. Aldrovandus claimed to have come into possession of the body and to have even had it mounted and spends a lot of time contemplating this, the specimen, speculating that it must have been a juvenile dragon. Where the body went, well, that's anyone's guess. But Aldrovandus did have a watercolor portrait made of it. The 16th century is actually a huge treasure trove of real dragon encounters. In 1543, the historian Gessner wrote of a dragon-like creature in Germany, which he describes as having feet like lizards and wings after the fashion of a bat, with an incurable bite. The historian and author Charles Gold would write of another historical case of the era concerning a man named Cardin, of which he says, and I quote, Cardin states that when he resided in Paris, he saw five winged dragons in the William Museum. They were biped, and possessed of wings so slender that it was hardly possible that they could fly with them. Cardin doubted their having been fabricated, since they had been sent in vessels at different times, and yet all presented the same remarkable form, in whole carcasses of winged dragons, carefully prepared, which he considered to be of the kind as those that fly out of Arabia into Egypt." They were thick about the belly, had two feet and two wings, whole like those of a bat, and a snake's tail. Another rather interesting description of dragons was given in the early 16th century tome called the Aberdeen Bestiary, which goes into great depth on the appearance and behavior of the creatures and treats them as if they were completely real. One passage reads as follows. The dragon has a crest, a small mouth, and narrow blowholes through which it breathes and puts forth its tongue. 
Its strength lies not in its teeth but in its tail, and it kills with a blow rather than a bite. It is free from poison. They say it does not need poison to kill things because it kills anything around which it wraps its tail. From the dragon, not even the elephant with its huge size is safe. For lurking on paths along which elephants are accustomed to pass, the dragon knots its tail around their legs and kills them by suffocation. Now, what I find interesting is that when you listen to that, as it is explained rather matter-of-factly, there's no attempt to really spruce it up with amazing imagery. We move into the 17th century where we have an account from 1619 in which a noble man named Christopher Shoreham saw a great flying dragon in Essex, England, of which he reported. On a warm night in 1619, while contemplating the serenity of the heavens, I saw a shining dragon of great size in front of Mount Pilatus, coming from the opposite side of the lake, a cave that is named Flu, moving rapidly in an agitated way, seen flying across. It was of a large size, with a long tail and long neck, a reptile's head and ferocious gaping jaws. As it flew, it was like iron struck in a forge, when pressed together that, scat that scattered sparks. At first I thought it was a meteor from what I saw, but after I diligently observed it alone, I understood it was indeed a dragon from the motion of the limbs of the entire body interesting. It's so matter-of-fact, and it sounds to me like he was a pretty smart guy. He's talking about comparing it to iron and talking about, you know, I was looking to the heavens, and I just saw it. The way that it moved, it had to be this. All right. In 1658, there was published a book called History of Four-Footed Beasts, which gave various descriptions of real animals and their behaviors. Once again, sitting there amongst the various detailed descriptions of known animals is a startlingly in-depth section on dragons, which explains them as it would any other normal animal. And I read again for you. This serpent, or dragon as some call it, is reputed to be nine feet, or rather more, in length, and shaped almost in the form of an axle tree of a cart. A quantity of thickness in the middest and somewhat smaller at both ends. The former part, which he shoots forth as a neck, is supposed to be an L, which is three feet nine inches. I had to look it up. With a white ring, as it were, of scales about it. The scales along the back seem to be blackish, and so much as it is discovered under his belly appeareth to be red. It is likewise discovered to have large feet, but the eye may there be deceived, for some suppose that serpents have no feet. The dragon rids away, as we call it, as fast as a man can run. His food, rabbits, is thought to be. For the most part, in a conny warren, which he, must which he much frequents, there are likewise upon either side of him discovered two great bunches so big as a large foot football, and, as some think, will in time grow to wings. But God, I hope, will to defend the poor people in the neighborhood, that he shall be destroyed before he grows to fledge. End quote. There be some dragons which have wings and no feet. Some again have both feet and wings, and some neither feet nor wings, but are only distinguished from their common sort of serpents by the comb growing upon their heads, and the beard under their cheeks. Gilius, Pyrrhus, and Gervanius do affirm that a dragon is of a black color, 
the belly somewhat green and very beautiful to behold, having a treble row of teeth in their mouths upon every jaw, and with most bright and clear-seeing eyes, which caused the poets to say in their writings that these dragons are the watchful keepers of treasures. They also have two dewlaps growing under their chins and hanging down like a beard, which are of a red color. Their bodies are set all over with a very sharp scales, and over their eyes stand certain flexible eyelids. When they gape wide with their mouth and thrust forth their tongue, their teeth seem very much to resemble the teeth of wild swine, and their necks have many times gross thick hair growing upon them, much like into the bristles of a wild boar. Their mouth, especially of the most tameable dragons, is but little, but not much bigger than a pipe through which they draw in their breath, for they would not with their mouth, but with their tails only beating with them when they are angry. But the Indian, Ethiopian, and Py Pyrigian dragons have very wide mouths, though which they often swallow in whole fowls and beasts. Their tongue is cloven, as it were double, and the investigators of, nation, of nature do say that they have fifteen teeth of a side. The males have combs on their heads, but the females have none, and they are likewise distinguished by their beards. It is all so painstakingly detailed and realistic, one can clearly imagine exactly what they looked like. History is rife with accounts and reports such as these, and this has only scratched the surface of the countless such tales out there throughout the ages and from all over the world, stretching from Europe to the Middle East, Africa and the Far East in places such as China, where dragons were a prominent feature of the landscape and revered. Many of what is written of dragons in later years is not even all that spectacular or fantastical, such as the writings of Charles Gold who documented many cases of dragons and spoke of them as being far from magical things of legend, but very real. And he would write in great detail on dragons in 1886, saying, The dragon is nothing more than a serpent of enormous size, and they formally distinguished three sorts of them in the Indies, viz. such as which such as were in the mountains, such as were bred in the caves or in the flat country, and such as were found in fins and marshes. The first is the largest of all, and are covered with scales as resplendent as polished gold. These have a kind of beard hanging from their lower jaw, their eyebrows large and very exactly arched, their aspect the most frightful that can be imagined, and their cry loud and shrill, their crests of a bright yellow, and a protuberance on their heads of the color of a burning coal. Those of the flat country differ from the former in nothing but in having their scales of a silver color, and in their frequenting rivers to which the former never come. Those that live in marshes and fens are of a dark color, approaching to a black, move slowly, have no crest, and any rising upon their heads. And dragons have remained persistent right up to present day, and there are occasionally surprisingly recent sightings, which blew my mind. In the early 1990s, there was a report from a woman out hiking in the Rocky Mountains of Alberta and British Columbia who says that she came across an actual dragon in the wilderness there, much to her disbelief. Even more recently, in 2001, an apparent dragon was purportedly seen by naturalists investigating a quarry in Wales. They described it as being two and a half foot in length, serpentine dragon with four limbs and a head resembling that of a seahorse. The creature apparently hovered through the air with it, 
without the aid of any noticeable wings, and the startled men watched it flit about for a full four minutes before it descended into one of the many dark caves dotting the area. While it may seem preposterous that the dragons we know from fiction, fairy tales, and fantasy could possibly have been real in any sense, the fact remains that remarkably similar stories have been reported throughout history by a wide range of civilizations and cultures. So why is it that the dragon myths and tales are so universal? Could there have possibly have ever been anything to this? Theories have ranged from that these were just misidentifications and romanticized accounts of known animals, some form of outsized reptiles like a crocodile or a snake, an undiscovered species, relic populations of dinosaurs surviving into modernity, perhaps even having evolved to their environment to take on different appearances and abilities, or, even as Carl Sagan once mused, the constructs of some prehistoric shared racial memory infusing us all. In the end, we have a phenomena reported for over a millennia of people of various cultures seeing these fierce reptilian beasts, and it seems odd that they should all construct such similar legends and see such similar beasts in their res respective histories. The dragon seems to be almost an archetype upon the landscape of the human psyche, somehow ingrained within us across cultures, and this makes it especially intriguing. Why should this be? Were dragons ever real in any sense? Are they just shared legends spewing forth from some universal subconsciousness? If they are real, then what are they, and do they exist now, or have they gone extinct? With no real evidence and their tales doomed to mere speculation, it seems that we may never know the answers to those questions. And in the meantime, the dragons must remain confined to legend, myth, and fiction. For me, I like the theory that was put forth on the BB show Primal, or Primeval, sorry. Maybe there are little pockets of prehistory that we somehow come across, and dragons come from our past. If that's true, well, I want one that's going to sit on my shoulder, talk shit with me, and shoot fireballs at bitches that we don't like. <laughs> and with that, we've come to the end of our episode. And I do thank you for joining me here again today. I hope you'll take some time to reach out to me today and share your thoughts on what you think. You can always reach the show at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com. And hey, if you have a suggestion for a future show or you just want to tell me what you think, drop me a line. On that note, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you again for joining me here on Renegade Talk Radio. And don't forget to tune in next time, my heathens. Till then... Have a beautiful dragon-filled day. We don't sugarcoat shit. <laughs> this is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio.